From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, New Guidelines for Plaquenil Screening, Part 2. If you're looking at the fundus in order to see a bullseye, you're not only wasting time, you're going to do harm to your patients. First this. Imagine a library of 100,000 books in subjects that interest you and subjects that don't. The books of this library are arranged, bizarrely, by publisher and date of publication. How useful would such a library be to you? How soon would you give up on trying to find a book that really interested you? ASCRS's impressive online content has been a little like that library until now. The new ASCRS Center for Learning at ASCRS.org slash learn organizes the vast and growing ASCRS online content, podcasts, and CME offerings into a unified, searchable whole so that we can find the material we want in the format that best suits us. Go to ASCRS.org and click on Center for Learning or go directly to ASCRS.org slash learn. This is the second part of my conversation with Michael Marmore on the new screening guidelines for hydroxychloroquine maculopathy. We pick up where we left off last time. What are the recommended tests to be performed during follow-up? And if Asians demonstrate more peripheral pathology, is a a 10-2 visual field testing really still appropriate for these patients? Uh, it's a fair question, and the answer is no. Uh, for my uh, patients uh, of Caucasian descent now, I do a 10-2 because the more peripheral pattern is very unlikely to take place. Uh, for Asian patients, because most show a more a peripheral pattern, but some do show the, the parafoveal pattern, I typically do both. They say, how can you do that? It's a painful, long test, and indeed it is if you're doing a standard 10-2. But there's really not much difference between the CETA-FAST protocol for 10-2 and the regular 10-2 in terms of its sensitivity, and that's been shown in a number of of studies in the glaucoma world. So I do a CETA-FAST 10-2 and a CETA-FAST 24-2 on my Asian patients, and it takes about the same same 10 to 15 minutes it would take to do a CETA-standard 10-2, which would be the gold standard. And um, I'm hoping that the companies will come out with a a combined test to make it even a little bit faster, but until they do, uh, that's sort of the best uh, best that we can do. And why do fields? Because fields are functional and are probably the most sensitive test with a good field taker. Now, we all know some people are not good field takers, um, and then the OCT comes in, and I strongly recommend doing both uh, a, a an automated field test and uh, and uh, OCT. Then you're getting the most sensitive test in the fields and the most specific test. And uh, people also often ask, should, they, should we use red fields or white fields? And there isn't a perfect answer because red fields are very sensitive, even more sensitive. In fact, they're very uncomfortable for patients to do because essentially the red light is very dim. Personally, I prefer the white CETA protocol because it gives you not only the the uh, uh, sort of the grayscale, which isn't very easy to read in white fields, but it gives you the pattern deviation plots. And those 
statistically eliminate the backgrounds, uh, the background noise to a large degree. And uh, if there are deviations in the pattern deviation plot, uh, those are uh, those are more likely to be real. And ophthalmologists need to learn to to recognize the patterns. Uh, you know, we know what a uh, what an arcuate scotoma looks like. We need to learn to recognize what an early early parafoveal scotoma looks like. You list fundus examination in, in the not recommended for screening category. Does does that I, I and and I and I realize that that the that the rationale is as you say is is that if you're looking for a, a bullseye maculopathy, then you've you've already uh, lo- lost the uh, game. But but does that mean that you don't actually look at the fundus when you follow these these patients up? Well, no, not exactly, but. If you're looking at the fundus in order to see a bullseye, you're not only wasting time, you're going to do harm to your patients. Now, most of us, when we see a patient, we do a fundus exam along with a slit lamp exam and everything else. For one thing, we have to satisfy the governmental um, demands and so on. And it's always nice to look in the fundus and make sure something odd hasn't happened. But the fundus exam is not a screening tool. Now, autofluorescence, which is a type of fundus exam, can be very helpful because you'll get early glow not blackness, which is RPE loss, but early glow in areas where the uh, cells are beginning to be compromised. And that may be the first hint in the parafoveal zone or in the arcade region. And if you have an optos or similar wide field instrument, you can look at both the parafoveal and the more peripheral regions at the same time. And it's a very valuable tool, particularly for retina practices that uh, that have wide field autofluorescence. The, uh, the wide field photographs aren't so good because the false color is... Uh, kind of hard to hard to read. So uh, and don't forget that you're an ophthalmologist and you're also screening for glaucoma and macular degeneration and lots of other things, but don't fool yourself into thinking that you can look into a blonde fundus and tell when, tell when there's a little bit of early bullseye damage because you won't. Mike, what are the statistical risks at uh, 5, 10, and 20 years of hydroxychloroquine use? You, you alluded to this a, a little bit earlier in our conversation. Sure. And, and it's very important to realize that there are two sets of risk data. There's the risk data that corresponds to a population, meaning if you saw, saw Mrs. Jones for the first time off the street, didn't know if she had been screened or not, that's a population risk. What's the chance of Mrs. Jones having, having toxicity? If she's taking a proper dose, even after 10 years, it's probably less than 2%. But by 20 years, it's going to be up close to 20%. And if she had been taking more than 5 milligrams per kilogram, it could be as much as 40%. So the risk goes up pretty fast. And uh, if uh, even after 10 years, if, if she was taking, a, taking an overdose, there's about a 10% risk. But why do I say you have to distinguish between population and risk of seeing the individual patient. Because if you're screening your patient and they were fine last year and they come into your office and they're fine this year and say, Doc, you know, you're telling me to come back every year. What's the risk I'm going to have damage next year? Then those numbers I gave you don't hold because those are for someone you were seeing out of the blue. If you already know that your patient is normal now. What's, you're asking about the incremental risk. And that incremental risk, even after 20 years, is only about 4%. So as long as your patient remains 
good. There's no feel loss. The OCT looks great. You can continue to tell them, come back next year. Yes, they may have a one in, one in 20 chance, even after, even after 20 or 25 years on the drug. Uh, but the toxicity doesn't go that fast. You'll have time to catch it early and they can continue to use a very useful drug medically. When you do diagnose toxicity, what do you do? We can talk about treatment, there isn't any, but you almost have to keep in mind that we're the ophthalmologist, not the medical doctor. Um, you know, 98% of my patients, if I say, you know, you're showing clear damage, I think we better stop this because that's realistically gonna get worse. They say, doc, I'm out of here yesterday, I don't wanna risk my eyes. But there's the occasional patient who's going into renal failure, who's, who's having unstable lupus and they're trying to manage them, they're, that the rheumatologist and the patient may decide, you know, I gotta stay on this drug for another three months or six months, basically to save my life. You just have to be cognizant of that. We're treating patients. We're not treating numbers. And to be clear, when you say the 4% incremental risk, what you mean is someone who has been on hydroxychloroquine for 20 years with no evidence of maculopathy, it's a 4% risk that in the following year that they're going to demonstrate uh, signs of uh, toxic maculopathy. Right, that's correct. And you're screening them every year, so it's 96% chance they're going to come back the next year and still be fine. And I think that's a reasonable thing to do as long as they, they understand and, they're, and they basically are coming back every year to be screened. If you thought you might lose them to follow up, then they're getting in a high-risk high risk area, and that becomes a different set of, set of judgments you might have to make. Sure. With hydroxychloroquine, is there a toxicity threshold response, or is it a dose response at which there's no truly safe uh, level, no no truly risk-free level uh, to the retina of hydroxychloroquine? It's probably the latter. We really don't know. I mean, if you took, uh, the, the, the pills come at 200 milligrams. If you took five milligrams a day, is there really no risk at all? I don't know. But if we could follow people out to 200 years, we'd probably find that one or two of them are getting toxic. If Again, if you look at those curves we have in the in the paper, even people on quite low doses when they get up to 20, 25, 30 years, you're beginning to see a small incidence of toxicity. I think it's a continual balance between how long the tissue has been exposed and how high the exposure dose is. Um, and even the five milligrams per kilogram number that we give is a, is a balance of a dose that seems from clinical experience to be therapeutic. I should add that some rheumatologists may say, oh, five milligrams, that's too low. I can't give that to my patients. Nonsense. Most of our patients at Kaiser in the Kaiser study were getting the equivalent of 6.5 milligrams per kilogram ideal weight when we actually measured their doses, five milligrams per kilogram real weight. Because the average patient is a little overweight and so on, and it, it works out fine. And rheumatologists don't have sharp guidelines anyways. Your rheumatologist will do fine at this new dose. And if they don't, then uh, you and them and the patient may have to have a, a discussion. Is the medical condition so severe that it's worth going to a higher dose and just watching them, watching them very closely? Um, you know, we have to remember again that we, that we are physicians trying to, trying to treat the whole picture. You report that patients with central photoreceptor loss may be at higher risk for hydroxychloroquine toxicity. Should AMD patients not take hydroxychloroquine? This is a question, again, with no absolute answer. Does a patient with retinitis pigmentosa have a greater risk of toxicity, or does the toxicity make the retinitis pigmentosa work worse? We don't know. 
but I don't think most of us would want to give a photoreceptor toxin to somebody who's already losing photoreceptors from some other kind of a disease. Now, the problem with answering AMD is, what is AMD? If they've got two central scotomas, I would not give them hydroxychloroquine. They need every bit of functioning retina that they can get. Um, but outside of their scotoma, the retina may be okay. And uh, you know, if they were if they were having uh, having severe lupus flares, maybe you'd have to uh, have to balance this. The, the 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 problem is with the patient who has a few druses and a little bit of uh, pigment epithelium dropout here here out mild dry AMD. Then it's a judgment call. If they've got a bunch of uh, uh, weak spots in their 10-2 field, I probably wouldn't put them on the drug because you're never going to know if the, if the field loss is from the AMD or the, uh, the Plaquenil. But if they've got a great 10-2 field, it looks normal. The only thing you see are a few uh, hard drusen or maybe one or two soft drusen that are uh, with perfectly normal outer nuclear layer photoreceptors overlying. So you can follow their OCT well. You can follow their fields well. Um, I'd say it's okay to use the drug. But that's a judgment call. Unfortunately, there is no for this. And as I've said, it can even progress a little bit if you catch it early, quite a lot if you, if you catch it late. Um, I don't know what to tell people who are showing some damage or who are in the high-risk category because they've been on the drug for for 20 or 25 years. I tell my patients, much as I would tell someone with macular degeneration, I tell them, wear a cap outdoors, uh, sunglasses if you're still light sensitive, take, uh, take lutein and zeaxanthin to uh, give yourself the best uh, strength that you can, but is there evidence that this is useful um, in terms of scientific studies? No. This is a drug that damages the retina in conjunction with the daily dose relative to weight in the, in, in the duration of use. And balancing these, we consider a reasonable dose to be at or less than five milligrams per kilogram real weight. Now, let me expound on that for a minute because you're going to say, well, how about if the patient is 55 kilograms or 72 kilograms? How do we calculate that when the stuff only comes in 200 milligram tablets? It's actually easy. It takes actually many weeks for this drug to stabilize in terms of blood levels. So if you want to give somebody, I'll just make an example, 300 milligrams per day, you could give them obviously one and a half tablets, but you could also give them 200 milligrams alternating with 400 milligrams every other day. And the balance adds up to 300 milligrams per day. So you have to get out a pen and paper and calculate, but if you calculate what they're Daily dose should be over, over seven days and figure out how many days they should take 200 milligrams and how many days they should take 400 milligrams. And it's actually very simple to, to give them a pretty precise dosage. Uh, or, of course, less is always good. And I should also add for chloroquine, which is not used much in this country, um, we recommend 2.3 milligrams uh, per kilogram real wheat. Uh, weight per day, and I strongly urge that everybody get out a copy of the of the latest recommendations, which are on the web. Uh, they're in the journal Ophthalmology, and they're free access, so anybody can go on the web and uh, uh, pull those off from the PubMed or from the journal Ophthalmology. The recommended diagnostics during the follow-up tests are visual field testing, as as we said, ten two um, for uh, non Asians and twenty four twos 
uh, or Zeus 824-2s plus 10-2s uh, for Asians and uh, and OCT of the the macula um, plus or minus uh, or or to exchange with um, fundus autofluorescence. Um, and then if they fail the, those uh, tests, there are, or if there are results from those tests that are equivocal, there are a few follow-on tests uh, that you mentioned, like multifocal ERG. Yeah, what you say it is okay. I might phrase it a little bit differently. Because the tests that are widely available and easily available are your standard OCT, obviously high-resolution SDOCT. The old-time domain is not sensitive enough, but SDOCT and automated fields. Those are the those are the are the bases because most ophthalmologists either have them or can get them very easily. Now, retina specialists can also do autofluorescence photos, macular or wide field, and some of them will have. And University Center will also have multifocal ERG, which is basically an objective visual field and a very good test. But the mainstays are going to be the visual fields. I like the CETA CETA protocols, which give you pattern deviations. And if you see one or two odd spots in the parafoveal zone, make a note of it and have the patient patient come back in three months or six months and retest. If there's still something funny going on and you don't have OCT, send them to a retina specialist to look. The problem we get into are with the Asian patients who have damage out of the arcades. If uh, 24-2 was not done, or if only a macular OCT was done, and then the uh, uh, then the area outside the arcades is actually being missed and so that's where um, wide field imaging can be helpful um, autofluorescence um, and or photography and also the multifocal ERG goes out beyond the central macula too so think of the autofluorescence and the multifocal ERG as sort of your backup tests at the big center when you need them uh, but um, think more of not being afraid to redo a test in a few months and see if there's any change or if you can confirm damage before you make a final judgment Mike, this is incredibly, incredibly valuable stuff. I'm tremendously grateful uh, for once more for your for your your generosity with your time talking about this uh, and helping spread the word. Um, I, I I just want to thank you very much. Okay, well, you're most welcome, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to spread the word. Michael Marmore is professor of ophthalmology at the Stanford Byers Eye Institute at the Stanford School of Medicine in Palo Alto, California. His paper, Recommendations on Screening for Chloroquine and Hydroxychloroquine Maculopathy 2016 Revision, appears in the June 2016 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Marmor or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.